Hi, Pastor John, welcoming you to our broadcast. We're in 2 Thessalonians today as part of our series, Living It Out. Our sermon this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and asks the question, does the Bible say what you think it says? In most cases, it surely does. But if we're honest and try to read objectively, there are some passages that are difficult to understand, particularly those passages that deal with the end times. It can actually be a little dangerous to try and take some of these passages literally. Find out why as we dive deeply into the day of the Lord. May 8th through 10th. So, uh, Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read this chapter for you. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all Deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to believe to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. So I've had a few people say, well, I am so excited that we're going to go through this and we'll finally get some answers. I think you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) The... uh, uh, have you ever, I, I know I don't have to ask Diane Strang this, but how many of you have seen The Princess Bride? Okay, there, there's an iconic saying there where, where Inigo uh, Montoya uh, says to Vincini, who keeps using the word inconceivable, he says, I do not think you know what that word means that you think it means. <laughs> okay, so 
let's just apply this to the Bible because there are a lot of passages that we think we know what it means. Amen? I know it's a reluctant amen. Yeah, because I said we think we know what it means. This is one of them. This is one of them. We all have an idea of what this means. And so our, our question for the day is, does the Bible mean what you think it means? Do we get to interpret the Bible the way we want to? Do we, at times, try to make the scriptures fit into a belief system that we have? I think we all do that from time to time. Uh, but in particular, in our subject for today, the title of this sermon is The Day of the Lord. So Paul's second letter to the church follows the first letter and expands on two major themes, the day of the Lord and idleness. Paul is encouraged by the news from Thessalonica, but some more recent news has come to him and speaks of two inner corporate struggles that that church is experiencing. Far be it from us to see any church experience inner corporate struggles, right? We've seen a lot of it from time to time. And so this church is going through a rough time. Uh, Aside from extreme persecution from the outside, people are dying. And in chapter 1, Paul encourages them that their sufferings were evidence of God's righteous judgment and would become, and that would all become clear when Christ comes back. And now here in chapter 2, Paul's going to go deeper into his teaching about that moment when Christ comes back. Since Paul left, there's been some unusual teaching about all this. And he wants to clear it up. He wants to address the alarm that this unusual teaching has, uh, has caused in the church. And is already, uh, the church is already fighting for its life in a lot of different ways. So in, in the passage, we're going to see two, two descriptions. We're going to see the day of the Lord in verses 1 through 12. And then we'll just see the disciples of the Lord in verses 13 through 17. Let's take a look at this day of the Lord uh, as Paul turns his attention to the church. And, and, and in so doing, presents us with a really difficult passage. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or letters seeming to be from us, to the fact that the day of the Lord has come. So there's been this bad teaching about the end times. And uh, apparently somebody even sent a letter, supposedly, allegedly from Paul. And Paul says, no, 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 that letter wasn't from me. Whatever that letter said, it wasn't from me. And these verses and the ones following that we're looking at right here have troubled theologians for centuries. A lot of disagreement on what's being said here. Paul's using apocalyptic imagery. He's talking about the end times, end times language. And it's hard to nail down the precise meaning of what Paul's saying. And it might be better to back up and take a look at the big picture rather than to zero in on the details. And in particular, when we get to this genre of of uh, scripture I'll talk about it in just a second we've we got to be very careful not to make it literal not to take every word as being literal uh, when we're talking about end times language the language is not only difficult it can be dangerous to take it literally and I'll tell you why a little later for now 
Paul introduces the subject that he wants to talk about, the return of the Lord. This is very clear. He's talking about when Jesus comes back. And he mentions our being gathered together. Now, here's where the difficulty starts, which could mean Jesus gathering his army for a battle. And it, or it could be Christ taking everybody up in the sky. To the Jew, to the Jew, it is a fulfillment of an Old Testament promise that God would one day reassemble the scattered tribes. So some folks will read this as a promise that God's chosen people will be back together. While others are going to read it, that Jesus is going to take everybody up in the sky and go away for somewhere around a thousand years or so and then come back and fight. Still others see Jesus gathering everybody together and fighting right then and there. See, this is what makes it so hard to assign a literal meaning to these passages. That Let, let, let me explain. That, you know, there are a lot of different ways to interpret Scripture. Uh, what we use here is a, uh, a hermeneutic, and hermeneutic means how we approach and dissect Scripture, uh, called the historical grammatical. Uh, well, and what that means is we, we try to look at a passage. We try to determine using the original language, some study of the culture, some understanding of what the rest of the Bible says, we try to determine what the original author was trying to say to his original audience. And then we try and make a determination as to what that audience was hearing. Uh, And then we try and bring that into the modern day and say what it should mean to us. And so... The result of that should be some sort of practical lesson that we have for today. Now, if, if the original meaning is ignored, and this is why we do it this way here, then the Bible becomes nothing more than a series of object lessons. How to lead a better life. And the deeper teaching of the Bible never rises to the surface. So this is how we end up with sermons like five ways to be a better parent, 12 ways to lead a cleaner life. That's how we end up with a bunch of do's and don'ts and not much about the the true subjects of the Bible, which are God and his plan of redemption for his children, written by his inspiration over 2,000 years ago. 66 books, 1,700 years in the making, several languages, several cultures, and they all tell one cohesive story. So don't, don't you think it would be helpful to know, at least in part, what those original readers thought their authors were saying? So we call this authorial intent, and for me, it's at the core of every sermon we preach here at Warrington Bible Fellowship. Not, not just me, but everybody else who stands in this pulpit. It's not always easy to determine. So, so, and, and, and so we see an example of that here. So is God just bringing his people back together? Is he gathering an army in the sky? And it would be very wise of us not to go too far down either path before we try to look at what Paul intended his audience to hear. 
In other words, is this passage really about how Jesus is going to return? Or is Paul trying to teach the Thessalonians something else? So in the next verse, Paul brings up another hard-to-decipher image. He describes what some have come to call the Antichrist. You know, it's one of my favorite things, Nikolai Carpathia. He's the one who's going to oppose everything that Christ says and does. Paul says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God so rebellion what rebellion oh we're waiting for this great apostasy to occur but I got to ask you hasn't rebellion existed ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit I mean, man, mankind is in constant rebellion against God. It could refer to any time or any age. Mankind, as a general rule, rejects God, defies his word, and sometimes even debates whether or not he exists. Can you imagine what God thinks of those discussions? And who or what is this man of lawlessness? Well, some people think this is the Antichrist. It probably is. But who is he? How are we going to know him? Some say, oh, he'll demand that people worship him and take his seat in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That seems pretty clear. And we haven't seen that, have we? Have we? Let me tell you something. Every generation from before Christ has identified individuals that that God's people thought to be the Antichrist. You know, in modern times, some people were pretty sure it was Hitler. More recently, a lot of people believed it was Mikhail Gorbachev. Had the sign on his forehead. Must be the Antichrist. Former president of the USSR. Even more recently, in 2009... Right after the election, some folks came to me warning me to get the church ready for martyrdom because a newly elected president, Barack Obama, was the Antichrist. And they could prove it. He was born in Kenya. Any day now, he was going to proclaim himself to be God and begin persecuting the church. So it's not just modern times that these things have happened. Back in the first century, a lot of people thought it was a Roman emperor Caligula, as evil a man as has ever existed. If not Caligula, then a lot of of people were sure it was Nero. I mean, he's killing Christians and using them as candles in his garden. He claimed to be a deity. He openly opposed God and opposed his people. Well, he must be the Antichrist. Well, even before that, in the second century BC, some of the Jews thought the man of lawlessness, which is an Old Testament term, not a New Testament term, was Antiochus IV. He was a Seleucid Greek ruler who sacrificed a pig on the altar in, in the temple. All those leaders died. They never shown themselves to be the Antichrist. Most of them died either by their own hand or by assassins. 
So none of these guys were in ancient times were the Antichrist. And then in 70 AD, the Romans nearly destroyed Jerusalem. Some say over 600,000 Jews were killed in the space of about a week and a half. The temple was pushed off the Temple Mount, never to come back again. But before the destruction of the temple, the Roman general Titus sacrificed an ox at the eastern gate of the temple in the name of the new Roman emperor Vespasian. Surely he was the Antichrist, right? Nope. Not even that. Some Bible scholars believe that the Antichrist is a spirit of the age, uh, a state of the culture. In much the same way the Bible sometimes mentions a, a city or a nation as she, the Antichrist is designated a he, but represents the culture of the time. So we should try to be very careful about what we embrace here. If we take all this literally, if he is an actual person, then the eye in the Christ has to have an altar and a temple, doesn't he? Hold on to that thought for just a few minutes. The next few verses seem to put it all, all that I've just shared with you in question. Paul says in verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He's saying, okay, we talked about this the last time I was there. Don't get too excited. You know what's true. I told you what's true. Don't let someone come in and stir everybody up and get them all angry and excited. In verse 6, he said, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. The lawless one, whoever he is, the Antichrist, is being restrained. See, Pastor John, he's being restrained. And we haven't seen him yet, so it must be what's coming. But remember, this was written in 50 to 53 AD. Almost 20 years before Titus destroyed Jerusalem. There are a lot of people running around going, oh yeah, that's what they were talking about back then, almost 20 years ago. But look at, look at this, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Who are all these he's? Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Who, whoever it is, Jesus will kill just by breathing on him. That's how powerful Jesus is. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So the Antichrist is already at work, but is being restrained. So he's a future threat, but he's also a present threat. Present in the first century, and I think probably present in this century as well. So who is the lawless one? And who will be out of the way? Listen carefully. We don't know. There's no easy way to interpret this passage. There's no easy way to interpret that verse. Generally, you would look at syntax. We would go back to historical grammatical and go, oh, that this he means that and that he means that. None of it's clear. Perhaps it meant something specific to the Thessalonians. 
remember, they, they're filled, Thessalonica is filled with temples and, and statues and cults and strange practices. Or maybe they were scratching their heads just like we should be right now over this. A, little, a lot of mystery here. And you know what? We, we have Western minds, don't we? We don't like mystery. We, we, we like everything to be tied up. We like for all of the dots to be connected. We like it to make sense to us. Maybe, maybe there are certain portions of scripture that we need to allow to be a mystery. Some areas of scripture certainly are, and most of those areas are in apocalyptic literature like we are right now. However, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. There are some things we can know for sure, and one of them is the fate of the unsaved. Verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, deal with that verse for a while, think about that and talk about it over lunch. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Those people who buy into this false Christ have rejected the truth and are deceived and as a result they are condemned. They're going into the lake of fire. No mystery there. Embrace the ungodly and you are condemned to eternal punishment. Paul's description of the Antichrist, whoever he may be or whatever he is, tells us that he tries to usurp Christ and his authority. He tries to claim to be God, and those who reject God and believe in him are going to die horribly. Now, now we're getting into the meat of what Paul wants to tell us. This is crystal clear. These are the things that he wants to be clear on. The end times are going to be devastating to those who reject Jesus Christ. That's Paul's main message here. Okay, so that's about them, but what about the church? How does the church, uh, the body of Christ, react to all this? How do we live it out? That's the theme of the series we're in here. How do we walk out these scriptures that we're seeing here? And that leads to our second description, and that's what is at the core of this passage. You see, we concentrate on those first couple paragraphs, and we kind of give lip service to the rest, but the rest is what Paul wants us to know. So the first thing Paul wants us to know about those who believe is that they are secure. Look at this, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Paul uses this phrase three times in this book. We ought always to give thanks. It's appropriate, it is right for us to give thanks to God for you, the church. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as a first fruit to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. So again, Paul says it's right and appropriate to give thanks and by extension to to the Thessalonican church and by extension to us, because we are the body of the Christ. Everybody, everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, everybody who has confessed their sins, repented, and turned towards him are the body of the church. He reminds them not only are they loved by God, 
but they have been chosen to be saved, to be sanctified, to go through the process of drawing closer and closer to God. Chosen by God to believe in the truth. What an incredible honor. What an incredible calling. What a poignant reminder of what's important in our walk and what's not. Paul says, oh, all this weird stuff is going to happen. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, don't worry. You're secure and loved by God. He's chosen you to be loved by him. Paul moves from the vagaries of the end times to some points about the church that are absolutely clear and concise. The church is loved and chosen. Oh, I like that. Put me up on a pedestal. Why is the church loved and chosen? Verse 14, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we can obtain the glory of the Lord. And the, the word here denotes, it, it has, has an implication that is acquired by believers, but it also denotes the, the, the idea that it is acquired at great cost. Believers acquire the glory of God at great cost. And Paul's not talking about the suffering of the church here. He's talking about the price that Jesus paid on the cross for you and I to be chosen, to be loved for the glory of God. Paul intends for his readers to understand the magnitude of the cost. He wants them to ponder it. He wants it to roll around in their hearts. He's not, he doesn't want them to be worried about the end times. He longs for his spiritual children to immerse themselves in this simple truth of who they are and what God has done. He wants us to know that the security that comes with the love of the Father and the glory that comes for each of us is because of what Christ did on the cross. Ladies it all out. And then, then he tells them and us what to do about it. I love this. We've talked about it before. Paul never leaves us hanging. He never says, okay, Christ died on the cross. It was a huge cost. Deal with it. He tells us what to do. Verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. How do we react to spurious teaching? How do we react to a mystery when people are running all over the place? You go, no, it means this. No, it means this. No, it means this. How do we know what to believe? We don't sink our, our feet in the sand and stubbornly go, well, my way is the right way. What we do is we stand firm. We hold to the foundations of our faith, the pillars of our faith. We refuse to let the sifting sands of doubt and fear undermine our calling and our promise. We refuse to be distracted by it. We immerse ourselves in the word of God so that the fear mongers and the unfaithful are unable to shake us, rob us of our blessing. 
reinforces this teaching with this simple prayer. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Did you hear what he just said? He, he sends his letter to a church that's in confusion and dying because of their faith. He said, don't remember God's brought you comfort. Do you think they could use that right about then? You know, the times we're in where truth has become this moving target. Every day there's something new that we're called on to believe. Could we use some comfort and good hope through grace? In verse 17 he says, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He says, just keep doing what the scriptures tell you to do. You'll be okay. So we had these two descriptions, the day of the Lord. Okay. I mean, if we're going to read this for what it says, we don't know when that is. And we don't know who the Antichrist is. Some of us think we've got a pretty good idea. But we've had a lot of people before us who thought they had a pretty good idea too. We know every generation thought they had stumbled upon who it was or what it was or he is or they are. None of them are right. Or maybe, maybe all of them are right. If we understand our scriptures, if we, if we understand what we're reading here, we know that there have been men and women who are evil incarnate throughout history. It's a hallmark of humankind. And the world in general rejects Christ and exists in an apostate state of being, don't they? If this is true, then a lot of us are waiting for something that's already happening. Do you understand? This is what Paul's trying to convey. We're getting distracted by a wrongful or incomplete interpretation of the second coming. And that's exactly what is happening to Paul's church in Thessalonica. They're confused about it. Some are saying one thing, others are saying another. Meanwhile, people are dying and lives are being shattered. Let's don't make that mistake. How do we avoid that? Well, the first thing we have to do is we need to recognize that end time passages are there and, and they're not clear and we refuse to take them literally. I don't think the flying dragon flies in Revelation are helicopters. That's what I've been told. And all those explosions and everything are atomic bombs. I think John got a peek into heaven and said, I have no idea what's going on. Let me just tell you what I saw. So we refuse to take them literally. We refuse to make them the focus of our walk. Oh, we got to do something. The end times are coming. They have identified Lord Maitreya over in England back in the 80s was the Antichrist. And people were like, oh, we got, we got to buy rice and water and put it away because the Antichrist is here. We refuse to make them the focus of our walk. We refuse to allow someone to use them to create fear and distrust in us. Then we saw the disciples of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have been chosen. We are loved by God. And he calls us to stand firm, to stand firm no matter what shakes us. To stand firm no matter how fierce the storm is. To stand firm in grief and in pain and in joy and celebration because we have waiting for us the glory of God. 
the unimaginable, incomparable glory of God given to us at a frightening cost when Jesus hung on the cross. Does the Bible mean what you think it means? Well, yeah, most of the time. I mean, the Bible is clear about a lot of things, isn't it? Very clear and very concise, but there are a few times when it's a mystery. We need to allow it to be the mystery. We don't know everything now. We're not supposed to know everything now. Paul says in his first letter to Corinthians, in verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 12, for now we see, you're familiar with this passage, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when Christ returns, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It'll all be revealed to us. So this is the caution. Let the main things be the main things. Let the plain things be the plain things. One of Alistair Begg's favorite phrases. You'll hear it if you go to Cleveland with us. But in these hard to understand areas, let's let the glory of the mystery exist. Let them be subject for casual conversations. I'm not saying don't talk about it. Let there be some speculation, some fascination. But don't live your life by them. It can be dangerous. Let me tell you why it can be dangerous. Because we go, oh, if we don't figure this out, how will we know who the Antichrist is? If we don't know what's happening, how will we know to be ready? That's the whole point. It's confusing because we don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We're supposed to live our lives in constant expectation of his return. If we think the Antichrist is a real person and that these, these passages are literal, well, he has to have a temple. He has to have an altar. They need to rebuild the temple. They need to reinstitute the sacrifice. And that ain't happening today. So he's not coming back today. You see? You're not, see? This is what was happening in Thessalonica. They got in all these arguments over the end times. Some people said he came back already. Some people said he's not he's coming back really soon. We can see all this going on and so on and so forth. And people are going, well, I don't have to do much. I'll just wait for him to get here. It's dangerous to take him literally. We read that he's going to come like a thief in the night. But we say to ourselves, things have to happen first. Antichrist has to rise up. He has to be wounded. Gorbachev. Temple has to be rebuilt. Blah, 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 blah. We don't really think he can arrive at any minute. Brothers and sisters, Jesus paid a terrible cost for us to be able to stand firm on the foundations of our faith on the pillars of what the Bible's written about so that we can be the witnesses to the world around us. When everything is falling apart, storms, climate change, political wars, rumors of wars and everything, there we stand and say, you know, it's going to be okay. You just need to know Jesus Christ. Did you know he died for you? Did he know he hung on the cross for your sins? And all you have to do is repent and believe in him. And you can have eternal life. That's 
That's what Paul wants us to know. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your son. Lord, that you sent to die a horrible death. Even more so because he was the only one of us ever to walk on his earth that was holy and perfect. We give you thanks that he paid that horrific cost that we might be your agents in this world. Help us keep our focus on those things that are vitally, eternally important. Help us to enjoy the parts that are mysteries, Father. Let them linger in our conversations. Let them linger in our thoughts, Father. But help us to keep our focus on Christ and the cross and the gospel that you've charged us with. We thank you, Lord, that we have been chosen to be loved by you. What greater honor can there be? We pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back with chapter 3 next week. And if anybody has an idea what I should preach on the week after that, let me know. God bless you. Thank you.